This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why it's so precious. Um, Because our hope, our peace, our our righteousness are are all tied into the same event, into the same thing. And and that's the, the death of Jesus on the cross. And being that He wasn't just a man, He conquered the cross and was risen again on the third day, thus sealing our fate. Um, what an unbelievable, incredible act. Well, as we turn back to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, I want to remind us with verse 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a, what a great statement. What a bold proclamation. And it's important that we understand how this can be and how it's so true. Um, before we get to that, though, I, the other night I was at a, a high school basketball game with some some dear friends of ours, and we were we were talking about the the history of Christianity, and we were talking about you know just the, the history of Bibles and how Bibles came to being, and and he introduced me to a man who actually uh, collects Bibles, original Bibles, and and he's got quite the collection, I guess, and. Uh, so we were just talking about, you know, men like William Tyndall and uh, John Wycliffe and you know Martin Luther and John Rogers and, and maybe you don't even know some of these men, but uh, what a precious gift the Word of God is, and, and 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 we just we take this for granted because we've always had one. We've probably had ten Bibles, you know, in your house or around. And you, and you just don't understand the, the labor and the work that people did to, to preserve the scriptures. Um, going all the way back to the, the Masoretic priest who would copy diligently every, every jot and every tittle, right? Um, and then the translators and people like Martin Luther who, who so desperately understood that, that the common man needed the word of God. And so the only way for Luther being a German... To do that would be to be to understand the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic so that he could then translate it back into German for his own people as, as, as a gift. Um, and there was great struggle with that. And you, you had the Catholic Church that was persecuting uh, these men, uh, killing them, uh, because they, they didn't want the scriptures uh, interpreted incorrectly or, or misinterpreted. Um, and so it, it wasn't like you know there there was a, a crowd of of uh, the clergy or the church that was rooting for this to happen. Uh, in fact, there was great opposition to that. And we uh, most of us are pretty familiar with Luther's story and and, and uh, you know the Great Reformation. But I was reminded in our conversation, uh, and we're we're talking a lot about just some of the key differences, and and, and it's. It's important for us to understand because today we're going to talk about a, a theological term called assurance, right? Or 
um, you know, the security of your salvation. And, and why is something like this become such a debate and such an argument? Uh, you can come to a passage like Romans 8, and it's, uh, it's pretty clear uh, that we should have all our hope, all our faith, all our confidence is all tied into uh, to what Christ has done for us. Uh, and it's not really complex. But it's important that you understand that there's, there's been this, um, this debate, and it's the debate between kind of uh, what Orthodox Christianity was and uh, the Catholic Church, and then just as, as time has gone by, there's just been this, you know, a, a, what was a gradual difference and then a hard separation with the, the Protestant Reformation. But it all boils down to this. Um, it, it, it depends on whether you understand Christianity and salvation as a man-centered, man-centric, or God-centric. And, and so if you tie in any element of, of a human component, uh, then, then you run the risk of, of having the wrong gospel or the, the wrong idea. And so it, it starts in the beginning when we talk about how do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you're genuinely a Christian? Well, it goes back to the beginning of that. Well, how were you saved? How, why are you a Christian? What, you know, what, what, what made that happen? We go back to the cross. We, we go back to the Holy Spirit having convicted you. We go back to, to Jesus Christ and, and nobody going to the Father but through the Son. We, we go back to to God saying, I draw you near, right? None of that has anything to do with us. Now, we don't really like that idea, especially as Americans. As, as Americans, we're, the, we're, you know, we, we, we don't think about it this way, but we're, we're the cowboys still. We're, we're, we're the frontier. We're the, you know, we're independent entrepreneur and, and we like our freedom and our independence. And, and there's great elements to that. It's just very dangerous when you talk about it in theological terms because you run the risk of making yourself God. You run the risk of making yourself autonomous. And so there's those times and situations then when you come to Scripture and you think, well, I don't know that I necessarily like it that way. Like, for instance, that I have nothing to do with my salvation. I want something to do with it. Even if it's the element of of I made the decision. Well, not exactly. Um, and so, uh, some of the issues, and this is why a couple weeks ago I had my brother going over the, the solas, because it's sola Christos, right? It's in Christ alone. The only way to the Father's, you know, from the Son, in Christ alone. Sola Scriptura. It's only God's Word that we follow. That's it. It's, it's, you know, by God alone. These are very singular in, the, in their mindset. And these are why these were essentials of, of the Christian faith. So, if we know that our salvation is in Christ alone, then our, our confidence for our redemption goes back to that, that same pillar. Not in whether or not we had a bad day. Not in whether or not we've acted in the flesh. Not in whether or not we're, we're in a struggle. 
right? Not only our own personal struggle of sin, but even just being in the middle of a, of a personal trial. So what we want to do then is, is make sure that our, our, our mind is right and that we know that our salvation comes from the sovereign hand of God. And that's why the book of Romans becomes so important. When we look at a passage like verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed with the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And remember, we went, we talked about this last week ten times referring to the personal pronoun he. It's all about what he did. He, he called, he foreknew, he predestined what? To, to justify us because of our sin and then to glorify us so that we would have the, the glorification. The, this is the spiritual uh, concept of being in heaven forever, right? And so that's the great promise that's wrapped in there, right there in two verses. And it's fairly simple. So why the confusion? Well, we'll get to that. So it's essential to our faith uh, that the starting point is God's sovereignty. And today we're going to learn that, that, again, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because our faith is secure because it's sure you, you can count on it and so the assurance of salvation are, are two points today God is for us God is for us and God is the justifier God is the justifier so again we see that assurance is all tied into to, to God being the ultimate source well let's take a step back real quick and, and just Looking at Romans again and getting that context, right? Context is, is, is so very, very important. We want to make sure that, well, we didn't just drop into Romans 8 and just kind of pick out two verses that, that sounded good for the argument. Uh, the, there, there's an argument that's going through. And just going back uh, last chapter to Romans 7, and remember Paul is just struggling with this concept of wanting to do the right thing, but he still struggles with not doing the right thing. And, and his end conclusion is, oh, wretched man that I am. Right? I'm just, I, I just, I'm still a, a wretched, sinful man. And even though uh, he, he's uh, on the one hand uh, with his mind serving the law of God, but on the other hand with his flesh and the law of sin. And then Romans 8 1 says, now, let's regroup. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, I see that you're struggling. Church, I see that you're struggling. But understand, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no hell for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we take that sigh and that deep breath, knowing that we relate to Romans 7 and we struggle on a day-to-day basis. Okay, there's no condemnation. Well, how does this work? Well, then explain this to me. So in Romans 8, we see, well, it begins again by God and this, this spirit of life that God gives through the Holy Spirit. And there's a spirit of adoption. So being a, an orphan, being on the, on, on the outside of, 
of God's family, God comes and he adopts you. He adopts you. He, he, he makes you a, a spiritual slave. You are no longer a slave to sin and unrighteousness, but because he's adopted you and, and purchased you with the price, the, the blood of Christ, that now you are a slave of obedience. And as he, and as he moves through Romans 8, we realize and we come to understand too, you know, um, even when I want to pray, even when I want to, quote unquote, be good, I still struggle with it. I don't even know what, how to pray the right way. And we see how great God's love is and that he intercedes for us. In verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. And so that's kind of the, the, the buildup that uh, as we're going through Romans 8 and we're, we're, we're in the book of Romans, we're, we're, the argument is to understand, well, what is true redemption? All of us have sinned. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. The wages of sin, the results, the consequences of sin are death. And yet we've been, we've been adopted. We're, we're joint heirs, but we're in this this constant toggle. So, verse 31. You say then that God foreknew you. He predestined you. He, he called you. He justified you. He glorified you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Right? Remember, Romans is an argument. It's a debate. There's questions here. They're, they're challenging questions. And, and we get a little insight into this in, in verse 35 and even verse 38 and 39. Because the reality is, is, hey, I live in the real world. Right? And the real world is there's tribulation. There's distress. There's persecution. There's famine. There's peril. There's, there's the sword. And so you're saying that you've adopted me. You're saying that you foreknew me and predestined me and called me and justified me. You chose me. You elected me. Right? But I'm still struggling here. I'm still struggling with life. So the promise is, well, what shall we say? Listen, if God is for us, who can stand against us? So our, our, our first key to assurance is God is for us. You need to understand God is for us. The presupposition is, but in my struggle, it doesn't feel like he's for me right now, especially right now, right? Um, I don't see it. Romans 5 talks about this. There's going to be tribulation. There will be. James 1 talks about it. There's going to be trials. And guess what? We're supposed to consider it pure joy. Well, how? Well, you're, you're supposed to understand that these trials are going to develop and build your, your character, your proven character. James 1 and Romans 5 says that. But even more importantly, you need to understand God is for you. God's for you. And again, as, as human beings, we say, okay, but I'm, I'm still struggling with this concept. Well, 
Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So the, the, the first rebuttal to your struggle is, you know Jesus didn't exactly have it easy, right? You know Jesus actually suffered a lot, right? If, if I didn't spare my own son, and let's not forget what happened to my son. My, my son died on the cross for, for sin. Um, I don't think any of us have gone that far to our trials, to that extent. And so let's have some perspective here. Just because you're having some trials, just because you're having some, some struggles, um, don't think that that means that you've been abandoned. Because I didn't abandon my son. It was all part of a plan. And I'm not going to abandon you either. Why? How? Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. See, again, this goes back to the important doctrine of election. If, if it were based on your faith, how amazing your faith was, how deep it was. If it were based on your works and all the amazing dynamic and great things and all the amazing sermons that you preached or songs that you sang or money that you wrote or service or whatever it is, if it were based on that, well, then you could run into some trouble when Things aren't exactly on, on the high end of life. But when, when you're one of God's elect, when you're, when you're picked, hand-picked by God, um, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? And, and we have to get our arms around, well, what are the ramifications of, of this election? The, the ramifications, and all we have to do is is back up right here the ramifications of God picking and choosing and predestining and, and, and foreknowing is our ultimate justification by him and him alone not by you by him and so how do we know that God's for us because it's him who puts you on his team He's the one who did that. I know in sports this happens a lot where, where people don't get the, the playing time that they want. And, and they struggle with it. And they think they're better than the other guy. And, you know, and, and, so there's, and, and they, they forget that you know your, your, your coach did pick you. He, he does like you. He, he's using you. You're a piece and a part of the team uh, to win games. And today, he's not using you. Um, maybe you're a pitcher. Maybe you're a pinch runner. Maybe it's a left-handed pitcher. Whatever. It doesn't matter. The, the, the point is that you, you, you trust the coach. You trust the guy who picked you. He does like you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have picked you. And, and even way more deeper than a silly analogy of sports. But, but when God calls us, this was also, and we talked about this last week, this was a predestined thing, right? It's, he didn't, 
you know, it's been described as this, this idea that, well, maybe God just, you know, he, he saw it before it happened, right? You know, he, he, he already saw the, you know, the, the pre-screening of the show. Well, well, that really doesn't work for two reasons. One is we don't have any verses in the Bible that, that describes it like that. Number two is the idea of foreknowing and predestining all has to do with his, his sovereign hand, of him being in control. So in the Old Testament, when he talks about that there is going to be a coming king, that there is going to be a Messiah, that there is going to be a virgin birth, that the, the baby's going to be more of that, when he's laying this all out, it's not because he's already seen it, it's because he's going to make it happen. He's a very active control of the situation, not a passive one. It's very, very active. And it's vital and important that we understand that. That our assurance then is based on this, this active God being all for us to the point that it's not just happened today, but it's happened way back when in a, in a predestined uh, form. We, we talked about that last week. So once again... Um, God isn't for us because we became so loyal to him or so dedicated or so knowledgeable in the scriptures by reading it. He is the source. He is the supply. He's the one who's orchestrated the entire process. That's how and that's why he's for us. So we can be confident and secure in that. Well, the second aspect we see is he's also the justifier. Verse 33. See, nobody can bring a charge against God's people, against the brethren. Why? Because it's God who's the one who's the judge. You can bring all the accusations you want. And by the way, that's what Satan does. Satan is the accuser. He brings all the accusations and he's, he's in God's ear. Chirp, 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 right? You saw this great example with Job. This is a literal thing. This is not allegorical. This is what Satan does. But God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Question. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Again, the question is, as we're struggling and we're, we're having a hard time of life and we're trying to figure out how this this works, you, you have to understand, listen, God is for you. God picked you. And it's God who's the one who's going to judge. He is the justifier. So I don't care who brings a charge against you. You're elect. And who's going to be the one that condemns you? And, and this is the question. Who's going to be the one that condemns you? You mean Jesus who died for you? Do you see that there? Verse 34. Who is the one who condemns you? Jesus Christ? Is he who died? He's the one who intercedes for us. This is the one who is, is then going to turn on you? Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? So can I be confident in my salvation can i be confident that i'm secure in my faith as much as i can be confident in 
Christ Jesus, who is the one who is the justifier and the one who died for me. See how that works? So, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Christ himself? No. Okay, so it's got to be something else, right? There's some other action or activity or thing that then is going to create this wedge between us and our faith. So the question is, the big question is, can I lose this? Can I, in, in these trials, in, in this struggle in life, can at some point then I, I, I lose my way? I lose my faith. I lose my salvation. Verse 35, well, okay. Who's going to be the one or what's going to be the way that's going to create that wedge that's going to separate you? Is it going to be tribulation? So is it going to be that things get so bad, so hard, that that's going to be it? And remember, Christians have faced some horrific things. Absolutely horrific things. The, the Roman Colosseum, where, where Christians were put in there to, to fight lions. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs catalogs tons of, of just wicked ways that people would torture Christians, putting them in a, a sack full of snakes so the snakes can bite them and poison them to death. Is that going to be what's going to separate you from Christ? Because it's happened. Or, or, or distress? I, mean, I think all of us have been in distress of some form or another. Now back to persecution. What about just persecution? You're going to be persecuted so much that you're going to then deny Christ. Is that going to be it? What about famine? See, we, we hear something like famine, we just race on by, right? Because, well, we've never faced famine. The famine, again, is this example as we're looking at these. This is bad stuff, guys. The, the point here is to say, hey, let's look at like some really overwhelmingly huge obstacles. Is this going to be what separates you from the love of Christ when, when there's famine when you can't feed your children your family to, to watch your family starve and die right that's that's what famine does nakedness you're so poor you literally are stripped down to absolutely nothing different perils the sword dying is dying going to separate us Verse 36, just as written, for example, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is to be expected. This was prophesied in, in the Psalms that we are going to be, as believers, like sheep to be slaughtered. There, there will be tribulation, distress, persecution, peril, sword. It's going to be there. But, 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 in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. How? How do we conquer in our distress, in our trial? How? Because God is for us. He's the justifier. It's, verse 37, 
through him. And the problem is, is we want it to be about us. And the second we think, well, I, nah, you, 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 it, it, see, it's not about you. It's not about the situation, the circumstances that you can't control. The people around you that are the cause of the persecution. It, it's, look, you need to understand in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. How? Through him who loved us. It's through Christ. Our, 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 our hope, our security is through Christ. And then we go to verse 38. How sure can we be? How sure can we be that, that we're, we're, we're safe in the Redeemer's hands? Well, I'm convinced that neither death, which I believe and some argue is suicide that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God what can separate us from the love of God nothing why because God picked you and put you in his hand and says, come and get it. Who is going to take you out of God's hand? It reminds me of the seals in Revelation. Who is worthy to break the seal? Who is worthy to to open up God's hand from the, the adoption that he has done by picking you, by choosing you, by predestining you into his family, into his hand, and is going to take it out. And the answer is nothing. Nothing is able to keep you from the love of God. The only thing that's able to separate you then would be Jesus Christ himself. So so the one who died for you is then going to condemn you, and that's the argument here in, in Romans 34. No. Well, so why the doubts? Because if we're honest, every single person in this room has had doubts at times, right? And we've all struggled. I don't know. Am I am I okay? Am I am I am I on the right? Do, do, maybe maybe I'm not saved. Especially when we come to the communion table and the communion table calls and asks us to examine ourselves and here's the point it, it's it's not a recounting of all the amazing and great things that you've done and then you line them up with all the bad things that you've done and you say in the scales of justice well i'm, I'm doing all right i can take communion today it's to remind you and to examine yourself to see who you really are in, hum- in your humanity and say, I am a desperately sick and sinful person. I'm no good. Um, but I have Christ. That's right. It's not because of all this stuff that I did. In fact, let's get off that page because remember, we've been talking about the law, right? And we don't want to be on the law program. Because the law program is we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty, and there's a consequence for disobedience. 
So as we're examining ourselves and we realize how guilty we are, the, the sudden shift is back to Christ and all our hope and all our confidence and all our faith is back to him where it should be. Um, and so what happens then is is we, we our, our confidence is shaken. Why? Well, because we still struggle with temptation. There's, there's still flesh in us, right? And again, Romans 7 kind of talks about that. And in that, then we, we have guilt and we should have guilt and remorse for, for when we sin. And, and again, that's part of why we go to the communion table to, to be reminded of, of how much we desperately need the blood of Christ. There, there's ignorance. We just, we just don't know. We just don't understand and realize. But when we're talking about some of this stuff, especially in theological terms, there's severe ramifications. If you want to obliterate election, if you want to obliterate assurance, then you've just now taken out your security and your confidence and redemption itself being only through God's hands. And you've somehow said, man can intervene and control this because of actions, because of events, because of sin. Um, Romans eleven twenty nine: the gifts of the calling, the gifts of the calling are irrevocable. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we've been saved through faith, right? It's a gift. God doesn't take the gift back. It's, it's irrevocable. Romans 11, 29. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 10 talks about faith is by righteousness of God, not of Tony. Um, I am called by His glory, not mine. I escape the corruption of sin by His promises. Again, it it's always points the finger back to God. That's how nothing separates us. That's how that's accomplished. Why are we confused? Why do we have doubts? Well, there's still elements of us that love the world. We're, we're, we're divided. We have a divided heart, a divided mind, and we, we, for lack of a better term, we dance with the devil. And all of a sudden, when we get caught in the dance, we realize, whoa with the wrong dance partner. And then it goes back to that guilt. Highlighted here in Romans 8 are trials. Trials really um, test us. They test us. They test our faith. Now, James 1 and Romans 5 says, but when you come through them, you your strength is stronger. It's it's better, your confidence, your hope, your, your security, your assurance. It's, it's better. I would not want to be Brother Job by, by any means at all. But when it was over, his faith was stronger. You know, I've, 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 never, met a, I've never met a truly godly man who poured his life into the scriptures, who came out saying... I'm all right. I'm awesome. I'm strong. It, it's always the same thing. The more you read the scriptures, the more it humbles you. 
Why does it humble you so much? Because you, again, it, it really, this is who God is and this is who you are. We are always going to struggle in our humanity with wanting to pull God down and to raise us up. And, and we don't always do that consciously. But even in the, in the realms of things like assurance, our confidence and our hope is just, it has nothing to do with the things that you do. And that's a really hard thing because, again, we look at ourselves and go, hey, hey where's your fruit, right? I should see your fruit. But your hope and your confidence still isn't even in your fruit. It's in what Christ did. It's in what God has done. And it's in that that you have your, your assurance. We're getting ready to, to celebrate communion. And, and, I, and I know that this is, you know, still some are, are going to struggle with, with this. And everybody has for 2,000 years, okay? So that's, that's common. But even in thinking about communion, can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus leaving us with this, uh, this tradition, this, this ordinance for believers as almost this torturous act of, well, every time we come to the table, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, this week I'm saved. Next week, man, not a good week. Where you're going back and forth with that. See, that's not how the the table's presented to us. The table is presented, and and we see this especially in in First Corinthians eleven. That this is for the church. This is for the brethren. Meaning, this is for Christians, the the saved people, and. That's a, a loaded statement, right? But part of that is we can boldly come to the table as children of God, as adopted heirs of Christ. And again, not because of the things that we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so when we do this, it's to remind us again, you know what? As I examine myself, I'm not so hot. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, because God wants your attention turned back to Him. Because we're going to start thinking we're okay. It happens to every single one of us. And that's dangerous. Um... And the longer you've been a believer, the worse it gets. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or just, you know, grandma, right? This is, again, where the, the legalism comes in, the pride comes in. And really, it's, I, I, I can see God just shaking his head constantly. It's like, do you guys not get it? Now, the world, they see right through us. They see right through us. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. The world doesn't hate Jesus. In fact, the, the problem is almost everybody adopts some form of Jesus, right? Jesus is easy to like. It's us. We're the ones that they don't like. They don't like our arrogance. They don't like that we think that now that we've been saved for two minutes, that we're better than everybody else and they shouldn't come to church because they're dirty and we're clean, right? 
Um, the more you read the scriptures, the more you read this book, the more you will realize how sinful you are and how holy and perfect and amazing God is. And, and this doctrine of assurance is all tied into that. Thank the Lord. Because not only would I ruin it myself with just my own ego and arrogance, but all this list of things would then be potential for separating me from the love of Christ. And God is telling us, no, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for this passage. And Lord, thank you for the book of Romans. And as we continue to move forward, we're going to see just how much in charge you are. For you are the Lord God Almighty, and there is none like you. And so, Father, teach us, humble us each and every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As Arden comes up to pass the, the bread. Let me read from Ephesians 1. We practice a, an open communion, which means if you are a, a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a brother and sister in Christ with us. And we welcome you with open arms to partake in communion. Um, communion is, is for believers. Um, and so if you've made a proclamation uh, of faith to Jesus Christ, then you are welcome to take it. Let me read for you Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, as we prepare our hearts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful to Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which are lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him and we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we, who were the first in hope in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. In him you shall also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. As you just meditate on 
on these words and just being reminded that our redemption is in him through his blood that our our inheritance is obtained because of his kind intention when Jesus was in the upper room and celebrating Passover. He changed the tradition of Passover to communion. And that event became a reminder that it was in him because of his body, not because of a lamb or a bull, but because of him that we now celebrate our redemption, our forgiveness of sin, the passing over of our sin, which the consequence would be death. And so when we celebrate communion, we, we take this, this bread, which is symbolically the, the body of Christ, and we do this in remembrance of him. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for lavishly pouring out your grace upon us, this great mystery of redemption that you laid out even before we were born. What an amazing, amazing plan. What an amazing gift of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Arden passes out the cup, representing the the blood of Christ, which washes away our sin, let me read for you. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so as we just prepare to take the cup, just meditate on understanding where we formerly were and how and why and by what cause that 
we are now in a newness of life. Because of our sinful ways, because of our former lives, we were dead. We were going to spend eternity in hell. But God, but God being rich in mercy, uh, raised us up with him. And so when we take communion, we're, we're identifying with Christ in the death, the burial and the resurrection, much like we do in the ordinance with, with baptism. It's a great reminder because, again, this is the, the, the pillar of Christianity. This is what Christianity is. It's understanding that our, the grace that we have, the faith that we have, it, it has nothing to do with us. It, it's a pure gift from God. And it's because it's that pure gift from God, it, it, it can't be changed. It, it, it can't be corrupted. It can't be altered. The, the blood of Christ paid the price for your sin. Not for the, because of what you're going to do tomorrow and what he's going to do the day after, but because of what he did 2,000 years ago. It's done. It's paid for once and for all. And so it's secure it's sure and so we can have that great confidence that that event will not change and that my selection will not change and that I am held by him who drew me near and so we, we take the cup and, and we remember that it's, it's nothing but the blood nothing but the blood of Jesus and that's where our confidence is Heavenly Father, our response is praise, glory, and adoration. Lord, we love you. We're in awe of you. And we humbly submit before your throne to, to be bold uh, proclaimers of uh, this, this great mystery, this, this great gift that you have given us and that is uh, available and offered to all. And so, Father, help us then to be great ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you going straight home, by the way?